The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And today we return to this wonderful, hopeful portion of God's Word. It's intended to lift the spirits of discouraged Christians. We have a a blessed hope that we look forward to the joyful anticipation of the coming of our Lord and Savior. This passage is a a brief comment on the event that is known to pre-millennial Christians as the rapture. Uh, I haven't taken much time in this series to speak of the diversity of millennial opinions. And truthfully, Paul doesn't add anything here that would help us with that subject. Uh, The scope of the second coming is not explained here. And this event that is called the rapture is only a brief part of a more than 10 century plan that will bring this world to a close. Those 10 centuries are known as the millennium and we are called pre-millennialists because we believe that there will be a literal kingdom of God that will come to this earth and the rapture will precede the beginning of this kingdom. We believe that the rapture is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. There is no biblically predictable event that precedes it. And premillennial Christians believe that Christ will suddenly appear. He will catch us away. He will snatch us up. Or, as we say, he will rapture his people. And then following the rapture, the world will experience seven years of tribulation. And these are the darkest days that the world has seen. Nothing like them has been seen before. Jesus said, For then shall great tribulation, uh, shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. Now, the important point for our discussion is the rapture occurs before the tribulation. The church will not experience it, and so we don't anticipate tribulation. We don't look for tribulation, but we do expect with great anticipation the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ and the call to take us up into heaven. After the rapture, those seven years of tribulation begin. That is a time for the preparation of Israel for a new glorious kingdom. It's a time of purging. It's a time when that awful beast that's known as the Antichrist will appear. It's the time that Satan does his worst against this world's population. And at the same time, God pours out his judgment. Now, when we study chapter 5, beginning next week, and then uh, 2 Thessalonians later, we'll learn more about that awful time. Well, after the seven years, Christ enters into the second phase of his second coming, and that's when he comes to earth to establish his worldwide kingdom, and he will reign for 1,000 years in perfect peace and righteousness. So premillennialists believe that Christ will come before the millennium. And we believe that the kingdom is literal, that it is physical. And the technical aspects of all of that and the events that are involved in the second coming, we're going to leave for another time. But for now, I repeat 
uh, we believe the church will not experience any part of that seven years of tribulation. And that part of it is critical for us to understanding why Paul wrote this passage. Now, it's a matter, the matter of tribulation and the timing of Christ's return that caused Paul to write this text. A church will experience various forms of tribulation. There will be persecution before the return of Christ, but not the tribulation uh, that the world has never seen, as Jesus described. God's people have always been persecuted before there was a church. Israel was persecuted. Uh, we've been reading about that in the book of Isaiah. There we find uh, God's people taken into captivity, the Jews persecuted. And then since the church began with Jesus Christ and his apostles, the church has been persecuted. Through these long 20 centuries since uh, the church was founded, it has been persecuted. Well, the Thessalonians experienced this, and coupled with Paul's teachings that Christ would deliver us from wrath, they were very confused. Now, if you look in uh, chapter 5, verse number 9, uh, Paul wrote, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, that seems to be confusing if the church is, in fact, going through persecution as they were. There were some of the members of the church that had died since Paul was there last, and they were confused about the dead. What is the relationship of the dead to the kingdom of God? Do Christians that die miss the kingdom? If a Christian dies before Christ returns, will he be left out of the kingdom? So there were some that were confused, thinking that the rapture had already occurred, that they were in the tribulation because they were experiencing this persecution. And so they thought that they must have missed the glorious call of Jesus Christ that would take them up and therefore they wouldn't be in his kingdom. So there was much confusion about it. And Paul said, I don't want you to be confused about it. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about Christ's coming. I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want you to wonder. I don't want you to be discouraged. And so he wrote this to explain these pressing concerns that had spoiled their assurance. And he wrote to give them hope. He wrote to give them comfort and to calm them down and not let their hope in Christ be destroyed. And so this is what he tells them for their comfort. Verse number 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I don't have time this morning to detail the three messages that we've had before. And so if you didn't hear those or you don't remember them, they are available on our website. You can find either the audio or the video of those sermons. And uh, you can watch those, those sermons in living color. 
Uh, you can have me in your living room anytime that you would like or any other place that you like. And I can't think of anything that would, but the rapture itself that would be better than for you to see me every day. So we can't detail all of those issues uh, in these other sermons. But briefly, we've talked about how this text deals with sorrowing saints, that it speaks of sleeping saints, and it speaks of surviving saints sorrowing because some had lost their hope, sleeping because some had died and were in their graves, and surviving. Those are the ones that will be alive when Christ comes. So we want to pick up there with those that are living when he comes. And we learned previously that believers will be changed. When Christ appears, the bodies, uh, their bodies are immediately transformed. Most of our discussion last time was about the change in the bodies of the dead, those that are in their graves. What will those bodies be like when they come out of the grave? And I often get that question because there are people that have died and they've been dead for centuries. Their bodies are completely decomposed, so there's nothing to come out of the tomb. Some died at sea, some, like martyrs, died at the stake, and so there is no body. Well, God can take care of that because the body that will be raised is a body that has new construction. It's not a mortal body, it's an immortal body. The body that you live in now is cursed, it's sinful and corrupt. And the body that comes out of the grave, though, will no longer bear the marks of the curse of Adam. The body that you are in now, this body that we have is very precious to the Lord because He purchased it. He purchased it as well as your spirit, your soul. He purchased that and it is valuable to Him. And so God's not going to forget this body. Remember this, that this body, the Word of God says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God is not going to forget the body that you live in. He does intend to raise it. He won't forget it. He won't ignore it. But what He will do is transform it. The body that you'll live in is a physical body, but it's a body that's made to live forever in eternity, that's free from sin, and it's a body that's made like the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a recognizable body. It's a body that's made for spiritual life. It's a body that's built to survive. For as long as eternity is, this body will last. It's a body that's built for eternal life. It's a body that's built for speed because it'll not have the limitations of gravity and of natural forces. It's a body that's made perfectly in the image of God. It's not an angelic spirit, because we don't become angels when we die and go to heaven. Heaven doesn't get another angel when a believer dies. You ever heard that? Uh, I've heard people at funerals will say things like that, Dear sweet mother died, and now heaven has another angel. No, you don't want to be an angel, and you'll not become an angel. Angels are beneath believers. Angels don't have the status of believers. Angels are made to minister to believers. Angels are servants of believers, and so you don't want to be an angel. But you will receive a new body. When the graves are opened at Christ's return, it's a new body. It's a glorified body, still recognizable as you. And we need to know about that. We need to know what happens to that resurrected body to help us to understand that there does need to be a change in the bodies of those that are living as well. The bodies of the living are neither suitable to go to heaven as they are any more than those that are dead and in the grave 
can go to heaven as they are. So they must be changed. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, the living will not die to be changed, but as they live, their bodies will be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, they will be glorified. I don't know how fast that is, but I don't think anybody's going to be there with the stopwatch anyway to see how fast it is. But the important part is, is it must be changed. The body must be made suitable for heaven. It must be glorified. And you may ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be glorified? Well, glorification is our ultimate sanctification. That is when we become just like Christ in our sanctification. It's to be made holy in every aspect so that we receive the splendor of a perfect body. You and I don't know what that feels like because we've never had a perfect body. I'm sure it's a feeling of euphoria, a feeling that we can't even describe. A glorified body has no aches, it has no pains, it's vibrant, it is refreshed, it is ecstatic. I don't know if there's any adjectives that we can actually use that can even come close in description. But this is how it happens to the living. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now that's what we discussed in the last message. And if you'd like to hear more than about this body that we will receive, then you can listen to those messages. Now I'd like to move on then to our fourth observation on this text. We've discussed sorrowing saints and sleeping saints and surviving saints, but now I'd like for us to change our focus to part number four, which is the shouting sovereign. In verse number 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now notice that there are three parts to the sounds that will be heard at the Lord's return. In the first, it is the Lord who shouts. In the second, it's the voice of the archangel. And in the third, there is the sound of a trumpet. Now, I will tell you that there are many opinions. There's much speculation about what will be heard at the Lord's return. I'm not going to get into all of that because there's a lot of technical stuff. And I'm not sure that if we argued about it for the next four or five hours that we could be for sure anyway. But there are some people who don't want to leave any stone unturned or any mystery unsolved in the Bible. And so they'll go to their deaths arguing things that they can't know for sure. Well, if the Bible doesn't fully explain it, you can't know it. I can tell you what I think about it, but I'm not going to fight with you if you have a difference of opinion with me on some of these things. Now, the first comment that we would make about this is the word shout. This happens to be the only place that this word with this meaning is used in all of the New Testament text. What is this shout? Well, it's a, it's a command like an officer who shouts to his troops to move forward. It's a command like a shipmaster as he calls out to his oarsmen, row, row, row. It's a command that demands immediate response. I believe the sense of it is 
in the suddenness of the Lord's return that he issues this command where he says, Arise, come forth. Believers, come forth. And without hesitation, the graves split open and the bodies that are in the graves come out. The living stand by only momentarily as the dead arise and then they begin to ascend. The bodies of the living are instantly changed and they rise. And so there is a force, there is a, there is a power that makes that happen. And that power is the power of God. It's the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power of the triune God. The God that transforms the body without any effort from us. Without effort, that command is obeyed. As Lazarus came out of the tomb, he did nothing but listen to the Lord's command and arise by the Lord's command. It was the Lord who energized him so that he could arise. We don't resist this call. Neither would we. We're taken up by an irresistible force. God does it. God commands. And we obey. Now that may bother some people. And you may say, what? Do you mean that he's not going to let us have time to think about it and decide if we really want to go? What about my will? Well, it, it, it sounds much like the call of spiritually dead sinners in regeneration. The Holy Spirit regenerates without asking. We're drawn irresistibly and given life in Christ. So what is there to think about? Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus said, no, it's hot out there. It's cool here in the tomb. I think I'd like to stay here for just a little while longer. Or Lazarus said, no, I stink. So I think maybe I need to clean up a little bit before I come out. No, when the Lord issued the command, Lazarus came forth. Jesus called and the dead walked out. By what power? By an irresistible power, he commanded. Well, is it the Lord Jesus himself that gives the command? I believe so. He indicates that he is the one who gives it. In John 5.25, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, I'd like to differentiate that verse just a little bit and say that I believe that this is speaking of the irresistible call in regeneration. But further, Jesus goes on to say in verse number 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. Have you thought about that? None of us has ever heard the audible voice of God. God speaks only through his word. Since the Bible was completed, no one has spoken to God and heard an audible voice. And you may say, why? Well, because the written word is enough. God has said all that he needs to say in the written word. If you don't believe the written word, then neither will you believe if you hear God speak audibly to you. So you hear through the word. God doesn't speak to us in any other way but through the word. So you may wonder, what does God's voice sound like? What language does God speak? How will we understand and know that it's God when he calls us and speaks to us? Well, whatever, whatever, having never heard the voice, I will say this. You will recognize his voice. You will know it's him. You'll know that he's calling you. And you will respond to that call. Now, won't that be glorious? 
Wouldn't it be wonderful that suddenly, without warning, you hear Him, you see Him? Now perhaps sight and sounds like those that Paul heard on the road to Damascus will be the way that the Lord comes. Perhaps there will be a light that shines brighter than the sun, and then that light dims just enough so that you see His form, His body, because that's how the Lord will return, in His body. We will see Him and we'll hear Him. Now we can only speculate what others will hear. When Paul heard Christ on the road to Damascus, the others with him didn't hear his voice. Oh, they knew that Paul was speaking to someone, but they didn't hear the voice of the Lord that he spoke to. Paul explains in Acts 22 verse 9, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. I, I believe that his coming will be like that. None but believers will hear his voice. So what explanation will the lost give when suddenly the graves are opened, the dead arise, living people are changed, and there are empty graves, and there are empty clothes left as worn? I'm not going to press that point today because I won't turn this into the Left Behind series. Uh, there's nothing more irritating to me than that, so we won't do that. So first then is the shout of the Lord. And then there is the voice of the archangel. Who is the archangel? Well, apparently there is a hierarchy among the angels. Some are more powerful than others. Some have more responsibility than others. We don't know how many archangels there are. The Bible mentions only one, that is Michael, the archangel. Now, some say that Daniel's prophecies indicate there could be more. Some that are called princes that control certain areas of the earth. Many believe that Michael is the chief angel and that Lucifer once had an equal position. Gabriel is suggested as another archangel. Jewish tradition says that there are seven archangels. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but if Vegas is taking bets, I, I say this archangel is Michael. Thirdly, there is the trumpet of God. Trumpets were used for announcements. Trumpets were used to move troops into rank and file. And so perhaps this sound coincides with the command of Christ at the rapture as he moves the rank and file of believers into place to take them up. The dead stand up and then the dead arise. And those living pause as they come out of their graves, and then they stand up and arise. They're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the Lord stays above. He doesn't descend to the earth to get them. They go up in the air where He is. Why? Because this isn't the time for Him to touch earth. Oh, He will come to the earth. He'll come when His kingdom is ready to begin. After the tribulation, Christ will come to the earth and set his feet on the Mount of Olives and begin his reign in the Millennial Kingdom. Jesus told the disciples as he ascended from the Mount of Olives, he said that he would come back in the same manner that they saw him go. So he'll come back in that body and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Our graphic for this series shows a white horse. That horse symbolizes Revelation 19, Christ riding on a white horse. His clothing is dipped in blood, the scriptures say, and he has a name written that's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But this text is not about that time. Christ will not touch down here. We will rise to meet him in the air. 
Now let me discuss with you for just a moment a fascinating feature of what takes place in the air. Satan doesn't give up easily. If he could, he would prevent the return of Christ. He can't, but he never stops trying. Satan's always after us. Our missionary said this just a moment ago. Satan tries every trick in the book. He does everything that he can. He tries to get us now. So is there any reason to believe that he won't try to get us then? Now let's think about these verses in Romans chapter 8. Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither principalities or powers can separate us from Christ. Many commentators believe that this is a hierarchy of evil angels that he speaks of here. They are very powerful. Now, why would Paul say that they cannot separate us from Christ except that they try to separate us from Christ? The devil is always working against us. And so as we ascend into the air, we pass through Satan's domain. Isn't this what the Word of God says? That Satan is the prince and power of the air. So I think it could be very likely that we'll need heaven's protection to enter into that space without being snatched away as we're being snatched up. In Jude verse number 9, Jude writes of Michael the archangel contending with Satan. Now their dispute was over the body of Moses, we're not going to get into that. But there was an argument and Michael knew that it was not the right time to engage Satan in battle. The question is, when is that time? Well, let's turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. At present, Satan and his evil angels have access to the heavenlies. Again, the Word of God says that he is the prince and power of the air. That's according to Ephesians 2 verse 2. The devil is a spirit. He's not confined to any place. When Christ comes, we pass through the air. And that's Satan's domain. Satan wants to protect his space. Now let's look at uh, verse number 7 in Revelation 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now most premillennial people believe this happens during the tribulation. And if that's the time that this happens, then I think that it would be fair to speculate that anything that happens in the space that Satan occupies is a place where he fights against us. At the rapture, I believe there will be threats. I believe there will be evil angels that will approach. But there is Michael and his army of elect angels. They'll be armed and ready to go into battle. Will they engage Satan at this time? I, I don't know. Because it could be by Christ's irresistible power that all that he does is speak the word and hold them all at bay. But it's clear that he doesn't do that in Revelation 12. He could speak and throw Satan out. That's all he needs to do, but he doesn't. Instead, he allows a cosmic battle to take place, a battle that he might very well allow at the rapture. And nobody can imagine what that battle would look like. No one can understand what a battle between angels would look like. Angels don't bleed and die. 
cosmic spiritual forces or, or powers that we're not acquainted with from this side. Uh, we can't see what they can do. So a battle might take place as we ascend to be with Christ. But we don't need to fear because the outcome is assured. We are protected. Now we can go on reading in Revelation 12 verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but a short time. Every time Satan is defeated by God, he's angry. Satan is angry. Oh, can you imagine how angry he will be when he's beaten down by other angels? I think his rage is unmeasurable. He can't stand to be defeated by ranks that he was once superior to when he was Lucifer. So the Bible says he will be cast down to the earth without power, without access to fight in the heavenlies any longer. And so he's lost all of those that he tried to prevent from being saved. And so in the tribulation time, his attention will be turned to those souls that are on the earth. And so he begins to vigorously persecute Israel to try and destroy them before the kingdom begins. Now you can read on in Revelation and see what he does. It's the time of the Antichrist. And I can tell you, there are many, many reasons why you should believe in Jesus Christ today. But here's one really good one, and that is, when Christ comes, there is no opportunity to believe because you'll not hear His call and you'll not see Him. He's come and He's gone before you know it. And then tribulation begins. Now, thank God the church won't see it. Revelation 3.10 says the church will be saved from that time. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So that's the point of confusion with the Thessalonians. They were persecuted and they didn't know if the tribulation had begun. Well, they would have known it because it would have been a time worse than the world has ever seen. The events of Revelation 6 and beyond would be on them. So Paul said, don't worry. You, you'll know when Christ comes. You'll hear the shout. You'll recognize it. You'll hear the voice. You'll hear the trumpet. You can't miss that if you are a child of God. Well, that brings us to our fifth observation. Number five is the secure saints. Verse number 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Jesus promised his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. He said, I will return for you, that where I am, there you will be also. Now think very carefully about that. Where Christ is, there you will be. In the end times, God's people will never be outside of the presence of Christ. Now, while we live on earth today, Christ is with us, but we don't see Him. God sent the Holy Spirit. Christ sent His Spirit into the world in His place. 
to comfort us until he comes for us. The Holy Spirit is not intended to be the final presence for the Christian. Jesus promised the Spirit would comfort us for a time. That's for the time that he's absent. But after we meet him in the air, we are redeemed and we are glorified and we are in our final salvation and from then we will always be with him. Now you may wonder, why do I mention that? Well, I mention it because Christ will return to this earth for the millennium. And when he returns, we'll not stay behind in heaven. We'll not be without Christ for a thousand years while he's on the earth. In Revelation 19, Christ comes riding on that white horse and we see who's with him. In verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are, who are the people in these armies? Well, if you go back and you read verse number 8, we read about the church. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That's very interesting. The army that follows Christ from heaven must be the saints who come to rule with him. So remember, he told the disciples they would rule. They would sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So the saints will return with Christ and have a part in ruling the kingdom. Now today, as Christians, maybe you feel meager and unimportant. You don't see yourself as very much in God's spiritual kingdom that we're living in now and certainly not much in this world where you don't have any ability to change the wickedness that goes on around you. Personally, you might be sick. You may suffer. Your job might stink. You may scratch and claw to keep your head above water. There's so much in this world to feel discontent. But you read this. So shall you ever be with the Lord. You'll be with him forever in heaven. And you will be with him to rule here on the earth. You won't be poor then. You won't be powerless then. You won't be puny. You'll be pure and worthy to rule with him. He promised it. And you'll live that promise through the riches of his inheritance. Well, now you can see why Paul gave them this information. He said, Satan is going to trouble you for a little while. He's going to cause you problems for a little while. But did you know this? That what God permits Satan to do is only for one reason. And that is to build your faith. God permits what Satan does so that you will depend on him, on God. So it's ironic that Satan tries to destroy you and at the same time God is strengthening you and God turns all that evil that Satan has to your favor as he increases your faith. And so as you withstand trials, as you live for him, he continues to pile up your rewards in the heavenly kingdom. The more that you serve faithfully, the more authority he'll give you in the earthly kingdom. Oh, let them call you a fool because you serve Christ. Let them call you a prude because of your godliness. They judge you now. But if Christ were to come today, you'll judge them later. Let them deride you. The Word of God says He will promote you. Let them boast of all they have without God. One day your foot will be on their necks and you'll boast of what you have in God. You are secure in Christ. You'll always be with Him. Where He goes, you go. Where He reigns, you reign. You see, heaven, heaven is not about sitting on clouds and playing a harp. Heaven is man as he was intended to be. Intended to have dominion, 
intended to rule angels, intended to rule the earth. Now that intention was interrupted by the fall, and this is what Christ came to do. He came to win all of that back, and he will defeat that old serpent, the devil, so that he can never deceive his people again. That brings us then finally to number six, and that is the satisfied saints. Verse 18, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Is this information that would settle their minds? Should they sorrow as those that have no hope any longer? Not after they hear this. The lives of suffering, they come to understand that's just a very temporary thing. Whether they live or die, whether they live or die, they will be with the Lord. The dead aren't going to lose out. Neither the living nor the dead will miss the return of Christ. So every believer, alive or dead, will hear the shout. They will understand the voice. They hear the trumpet. And they will rise to meet the Lord in the air. He says, comfort one another. So you comfort that one who stands in the cemetery and watches loved one lowered into the grave. They'll come out of that grave, a believer in Jesus Christ with a new glorified body made like him. Comfort that poor man like John Harrison who's in a nursing home where he can barely move, his body is racked with pain, he'll receive a new body. Comfort the church as we go through the trials of life. Comfort the financially oppressed. Comfort the one who goes to work every day and suffers humiliation because of righteousness. Comfort the struggling and the depressed. Christ is coming. That's why we have comfort. Comfort. Comfort God's people because... We shall reign with him. But let me say this last to you. This information was not given for your time of death. Did you know that? Paul didn't write this for your comfort in dying right now. That's not the primary purpose of this. Paul said this because knowing this should transform your life while you live. This is what you're supposed to do as the change comes and, and how you should be changed to, to live for Christ. How are you to live as you wait for Christ to return? That's the apostle's main purpose in the passage. Now if you'll turn to Titus chapter 2, this is our last scripture. The Lord doesn't intend for you to camp on this and just be happy as you go about your business as you were before. What does the coming of Christ mean to us? Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us for what reason? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Christ gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify us. You can't stay the way you are and be comfortable. There is no Christian, no one who believes in Jesus Christ, who doesn't experience a change in his life. If you go on living as you are, claiming to know Christ and there is no change, you don't know Christ. There will be a change. You are only comfortable as you obey. 
Verse number 15 says, Rebuke those who speak differently. Use the authority of God to tell the church how to live. And so as a church, we expect what the Lord expects. Our church must live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We give no quarter to the devil. We don't allow anything that God doesn't allow. We are to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming back. Live as he said. Listen for the shout. Live as he said. Listen for the shout. And then without shame, go up at his coming. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you received him as your Savior? Repent of your sins. Trust in him. And then you'll hear the shout. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org